If you have your Bible with you, maybe you don't and you haven't picked it up yet, maybe it's on the coffee table in front of you, grab that Bible, maybe it's on your phone, open it up, and we'll be in John chapter 10 this morning. Really glad that you're watching with us today, and uh, wherever you're watching from, would you let us know? We'd love to hear from you. Over the last two weeks that we've been doing virtual church, and now this is the third week, we've been getting notes from people around the country and in different places. Uh, Almost 3,000 households watched last week, and you're, you're part of a big, big family right now. I'm really glad that your home is joining our home here and that we can do this together. So I'm looking forward to digging into the Word with you. I, I want to echo what Joe said earlier in the announcements, that we are very grateful for the faithfulness and the way in which you've been giving. Thank you for using the electronic platforms to give to the church, and thank you for those who've been mailing in their gifts. We've been receiving uh, monetary gifts through the mail, so the mail system still works. Thanks for using that. Really grateful that you've joined in that way and that you're partnering with us. So welcome. Glad that you're here. We're about to jump into John chapter 10, and I'm going to pray with you first before we do that. Would you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for every man, every woman, every child, every household who's part of this time right now. We come before you having worshipped you and we've declared that nothing can separate us. Thank you for leading Michael to choose that song this week because that's exactly what you want to show us here in John 10, that you've got us. So I pray that as we study this, that as we dedicate this time to you, that you remind us in, in spite of viruses, in spite of sicknesses, in spite of financial loss, in spite of job loss, you've got things under control and, and that you do have a plan and that you have a purpose and that you're accomplishing things. Thank you, Father, for the way that you're causing people to dial into church services. Over the course of these last few weeks, I've, I've, I've read, Father, how churches are increasing in viewers, and I know that's you. You're moving people to do things they wouldn't typically do because they want to know about your love. They want to know about your word. So, God, I ask that you would use this time to strengthen us. For those who have questions, God, answer. Be close to those who have questions. Help us now through the power of the Holy Spirit. Illuminate our mind. We pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people from New Hope said, amen. I know that you're saying that at your home right now. What you see on the screen before you is Shrek. He's, he's a sheep. And yep, that's just one sheep. That's only one sheep in that particular photo. And the remarkable thing about Shrek is he was uh, found in New Zealand in some caves. He'd been missing for six years. He'd wandered away from his shepherd and became lost. And during this time, his fleece grew. And his fleece grew and grew and grew and grew over a period of six years. Amazingly, when he was found, his fleece weighed 60 pounds. Now, just for perspective for you, most sheep, their fleece weighs about 10 pounds when it's taken off on a yearly basis. But he'd been missing for six years. Well, for six years, Shrek carried all this extra weight, six times the normal weight, because he was away from his shepherd. In John chapter 10, Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. That means as his followers, we're his sheep. And so we've got a good shepherd, and he wants to explain what that means for us. And today in this parable, you're going to see Jesus describe what a good shepherd does for his sheep, and I think you're going to be greatly encouraged by it. 
Now, bear with me as John 10 opens up. I need to develop this a little bit for you. Understand the background. What's going on is this is the final public teaching in which Jesus is speaking in a, a large forum. The individuals that are gathered around him are confronting him. In John chapter 9, he's just healed a blind man. So in John chapter 10, we're told that he's going to withdraw beyond the Jordan. Now understand, there's no time gap between chapter 9 and chapter 10. So hear this. He, he's still speaking to the same people. He's still got the disciples around him. He still has the blind man around him that he's just healed. He still has the Pharisees around him. And he's got this big crowd. And this is what he says to them in verse 39. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Well, that sounds really intense, doesn't it? Like, why would he say that? And it seems like a contradiction of John 3.17. Let, let me remind you of what John 3.17 says. You'll see this on your screen at home. For God did not send his Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Doesn't that sound like a contradiction when Jesus says, I came for judgment, and then 317 says he didn't send a son into the world to judge the world? Why is he speaking of judgment here? I want you in your home right now to, to look around. Maybe you're at work, maybe you're at home, but look around and find a door and just look at a door right now and, and look at a particular part of the door. Look at the hinge of the door. That hinge has a pivot point. It's called a pin. The pin is in the middle of the hinge. Kids, if you're watching this, look at the hinge closely, and you'll see what's called the hinge pin. And on that hinge pin is what the door opens and closes by. Jesus is stating that he's the pivot point. He's saying he's the hinge pin. He's the pivot point by which all human destiny moves. The meaning is very, very simple by the statement that he's just made, especially in light of John 3.17 also. John 3.17 says, he didn't come into the world to judge the world, but to save the world. So the object, and this is in your notes this morning, if you're following along on your notes, hopefully you've loaded that down. The object of his coming is salvation. Yes, that is the reason that he came, to save. But look at the effect of his coming. The effect of his coming is judgment. In other words, there's a division line between those who believe and those who don't believe. Remember who's there. He's got the Pharisees around him, and, and he's got the individuals who don't believe, but he's got the guy who's blind that does now believe. See, by his very presence, Jesus has set the stage for everyone to be judged. It's the inevitable result of his coming. Do, do you remember the Christmas story in Luke chapter 2? When Jesus was presented, we're told specifically his parents brought him to the temple. And when Simeon, the prophet, saw him, Simeon scooped him up and held the child. He saw Mary and Joseph, and he held Jesus. And, and this is what he said. You'll see this on your screen, Luke 2.34. This child, meaning Jesus, this baby, this child is set for the fall and the rising again of many. And he goes on to say, here's why, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. See, the reality is that reality right there that he's talking about, that Jesus just mentioned in the parable and that Simeon was speaking of, is that Jesus is the most divisive individual to ever walk the planet. From his very first breath when he was born, he became an offense to all of the pride of mankind. 
for all of the individuals who think, I can get along without Jesus, I don't need him, I'm fine just the way I am, he became offensive. Yes, he came to save, but in the action of saving, he set up judgment. Once you have the information, you have to do something with it. And Jesus said, there's a line now, I'm the hinge point, I'm the point by which the door opens and closes. Watch the Pharisee's response now. Remember, we're not to the parable yet. We're, we're just about to the parable, but watch the Pharisee's response in verse 40 in John chapter 9. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, we are not blind too, are we? Do, do you hear a tone of disgust in their voice? It's not like, you're not saying we're blind. Would you say that, that they would be ranked with the ignorant crowd? See, the Pharisees are like many people today, maybe many people that you know. They assume they can see just fine, thank you, without Jesus. So with resentment in their voice, they say, well, are we blind too? Is that what you're indicating? See, they claim to see. They claim that they have good eyesight. Yet they still reject Jesus. So there's no remedy for them. They're going to be liable Watch what Jesus said specifically about that very issue, about people having information and not doing something with the information. It's on your screen, John 15, 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for their sin, meaning they've got the information. It makes them liable and they have to do something with the information because what you believe about God determines what you do next. We say that all the time here at New Hope. What you believe about God determines what you do next. You've got to do something with the information. Now, on the heels of all of that, on the heels of that, Jesus brings this really important parable. And the Spirit of God moves upon the hearts of the disciples as they're listening to this parable to write it down. And they write it down that for your benefit, here you are 2,000 years later, in 2020, almost to the end of the month, and you have the benefit of these statements right before you in black and white. If you don't have a Bible open, you can read along on the screen. You'll get to see it. But hear this before we dive into it. During that 2,000 years of time, there's been prosperity on this planet. Prosperity has come and it has gone. There's been times of tribulation. And the times of tribulation have come and they've gone. There's been the Black Plague, if you go back to the 1500s. There was the Spanish Flu, if you go back to the early 1900s. World War II in 1940s, and then you come into the 1980s and you find the stock market growing and growing, and then in the early 2000s, you find a financial crisis in our own nation. Yet during all that period of time of the 2,000 years of the ebb and flow of prosperity and tribulation, the word of the Lord endures. And 2,000 years later, it's still written here. And these truths that he's stating right here, they're just as fresh and they're just as relevant and they're just as vibrant for you today in the midst of this coronavirus as they were in the first century when Caesar ruled Rome with an iron fist. So just take a deep breath with me. Let all the cares of this last week go away and drink in what Jesus has to say to you right now. In John chapter 10, 
and verse 1. Let's follow along. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. What's Jesus doing here? He's got this crowd gathered around him, and they're asking him if they're blind too. And Jesus breaks into this parable, and it's a very simple parable. Here's what he's saying very simply. He's saying, I presented myself to you, the leadership of Israel. I presented myself to Israel as the Christ. And I did it in a lawful manner, in accordance with Scripture, meaning he submitted to all the conditions, all the requirements of prophecy. Just track this with me. He was born of a virgin. It was born of the covenant people, of the Judaic line in the royal city of Bethlehem. He conformed to every single detail that was prescribed in Scripture. And he goes on to say, he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. In other words, I did everything right. I did everything according to the law. I did everything the right way. And he develops that thought by coming to verse 3. Go with me to verse 3. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Verse 4 When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. Verse 5, a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Now, remember, this is a parable, right? And he's giving a familiar illustration. What's a parable? It's taking what we've described here in the last couple months, a, a physical reality, and then laying it alongside a spiritual reality, and that's exactly what a parable is. That's what Jesus has just done. But he's lost the crowd. They're confused by what he's just said. Look with me at verse 6. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were, which he had been saying to them. Uh, If you're a little confused by what he said, you can appreciate their confusion too because they don't even believe in Jesus and they're not tracking with him. So just hear me on this if you're a little confused by what Jesus has been saying. Shepherding has always been a familiar part of the agrarian lifestyle. And by that, I mean part of the farming world. It's part of the rural lifestyle. In the first century, if you were in Israel, you could see sheep all over on the hillsides. And Jesus has just talked about a shepherd and sheep. And in verse 2, he said, the shepherd enters by the door. Verse 3, he said, and and he leads them out. What's he describing here? He's describing a typical morning life of a shepherd. When the shepherd shows up for work. So you understand this. In, In the Middle East, it was infested in the first century with predators. And each village needed to have a common piece of property outside the walls of the cities. That common piece of property was a sheep pen. It was typically built out of rock, sometimes out of wood, but many times it was stones piled up, sometimes eight, nine feet high. So the sheep would be protected by high walls. So here's what happened. In the evening, a shepherd would show up after his day of work, and he would bring his sheep to the pen And the shepherd would lead his flock to the door of the pen, and he would leave them there and place them in the care of a guard, while the shepherd would go find a place to sleep. Well, the guard is on duty, and the guard is on duty through the night, and his job is to protect the sheep against thieves and against wild animals. And in the morning, the shepherd returns. And in the morning, when the shepherd returns, 
the guard allowed each shepherd to enter through the door, and he would call his sheep by name, which belonged to his flock. So track this with me. The, the true shepherd arrives, and the watchman opens the door, and the shepherd enters, and, and the shepherd knows his sheep. He knows them by name, and the sheep, they hear his voice. And when they hear his voice, they're thinking, it's time we can get out of the pen, and they run to him. So in verse 3, Jesus says, that shepherd, he calls his own sheep by name. Why is he emphasizing that? Well, because they're his. They're his own sheep. Those who have been given to him, he's referring to, by the Father. Now, put this in a spiritual perspective. He's, he's giving us a physical reality, and now he's applying it to a spiritual reality. Who are his own sheep? Well, that's you this morning if you believe in Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. Specifically, he's talking to, about those who have been given to him by the Father from all eternity. And when he calls, his sheep must come to him John 6.37 says, all that the Father gives to me shall come to me. Now, in context, right here at this moment in time, he's talking about the elect of Israel, those who belong to him from the tribes of Israel. And Jesus went on to say, when a stranger enters, they won't follow him. They're going to just run away. Now, track this. Even though the shepherds live in the first century, and even though the Pharisees live in the first century, and the Pharisees can watch the shepherds daily, they totally miss his parable. They can't understand it. They can't make sense of it because they're blind. And they've just asked the question, you're not saying we're blind too, are we? In blindness, they can't see Jesus as the good shepherd. So Jesus has to develop this thought. Now, I want you to watch a shift taking place. Go with me to verse 7. Watch the language change now. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Did you see what just happened here? Jesus has just altered the metaphors. He's still using the, the agrarian fig, figurehead, the, the same imagery here. But first, he's the shepherd, and now he's the door. So hear this. Some nights... When the shepherd showed up after a long day of work, the guard wasn't at the pen. And so as the shepherd led his sheep into the pen, he had to then become the guard. And some nights, a shepherd slept in the opening. Now, remember, I told you, there's these big nine, ten-foot-high stone walls, but there's a narrow opening, just one opening, just wide enough for a couple sheep to get in and out. Into that opening, the shepherd would sit down, and he would assume guard duty, and he would try and sleep in that opening to keep an eye on his sheep. And no one could enter and no one could leave without the shepherd. They couldn't go in, they couldn't go out except through him. You understand what he's saying here? This is not politically correct. 
especially to our generation. The statement that he's just made here, it's really offensive to our generation because Jesus is talking about exclusivity. He's saying, it's through me, it's only through me that you get in and you have life. It's only through him that we gain entrance into salvation. To be specific, it's only through Jesus we get into heaven. That's why he said in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you think that wasn't offensive to those living in the first century, you only have to look around your own generation and see how people react when they hear that. They heard it the same way in the first century. Like, you're saying it's through you and you alone? They took it offensively, but even more so in our generation. It's saying that Jesus alone is the basis for your eternal security. Now, that part in verse 8, what was he talking about there? Where he said, all who came before me were thieves. Well, he's referring to the false shepherds. In other words, the false prophets. The, the Pharisees were considered the shepherds of Israel. And they were the false leaders. They were leading people astray. They, they were all who came before Jesus. Uh, he reiterates in verse 9 what he said in verse 7 when he said, I am the door. And then he adds this eternal promise in verse 9. Watch this and drink this in, church. This is you. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. You worried this morning about your finances? You worried about relationships? You, you worried about your own health? If you are in Jesus this morning, you are saved for all eternity, regardless of what else is going on on this planet. And Jesus even goes further than verse 9 by saying, and I came not only that they may have life, but they would have life abundantly. That word abundantly is the only Greek word in your notes this morning. It's parisos. And I want you to see that. It's going to be up on your screen for you to, to get it. But here's the sense of it. It's talking about super abundant. The implication here is excessive, way beyond. So he's describing something here that's far beyond what is necessary. Meaning, you're not just saved. You're not just forgiven of your sins. This eternal life that you're being given, it exceeds all expectations. That's why the Bible says, I've got things in store for you that you've never imagined. Things that have never entered into the heart of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. So he's not just saving you. He's not just forgiving you of your sin but he's saving you for all eternity and not just for eternity, but he gave his life for us so that we can have life right now, abundant life right now. I'm going to develop that thought further with you in, in just a minute. But I asked you to pay careful attention to a door. I asked you to look in your own home for a door, to look for a hinge and look for the hinge pin. Do you notice the term door that he keeps using over and over again here? Did you notice the subtle change that in verse 7, he said, I am the door of the sheep. But then in verse 9, he says, I am the door. This, this metaphor he's using here is very powerful. Why the change of language? Because up to this point, 
He has been speaking about the elect of Israel, the chosen people of Israel, those whom he's going to lead out of Judaism. Specifically, I know he's talking about Peter and James and John and Martha and Mary and Philip and Thomas and eventually Paul. He's speaking about those whom he's going to lead out of Judaism. But now when he says, I am the door, not just the door of the sheep, but I am the door, now he's reaching out to the elect of all creation, meaning all those who will believe in him, who will become part of his universal church. He's speaking of the elect of all creation. So in verse 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And I want to give you five details this morning about that door. You see them in your notes. They're up on your screen. Let's just drink in what he's saying here. When he makes this statement, I am the door, what's he saying? Jesus is saying he's the only way to God. We just emphasized that a few minutes ago. He's the only way when he says, I am the door. And then he goes on in number two to say, if anyone enters through me, this is what he's saying. Jesus is the only source of capacity to enter. You can't do enough good works. You can't earn your way in by behaving well enough, being a good boy or a good girl. You have to go through Jesus. It's his capacity. Number three, if anyone enters, if anyone enters, that means Jesus is the savior of both the Jews and the Gentiles. Every race on this planet, every tribe, every tongue, every language, Number four, if anyone enters in, we talked about this a few weeks ago, you appropriate Jesus by a single action of faith. What is that single action? If you're new to church this morning, you especially want to hear this part, that you would believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's what Scripture says. It validates that time and time again. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. And number five, this is all complicit within that statement of I am the door. Number five, he will be saved, meaning Jesus is your deliverer, both from the penalty and the power of sin in your life. And then he completes it by saying, I came that they would have life and that they would have it abundantly. So he not only gave us his life and he gave it to us freely so that we would be saved for eternity, but he gives us so that we would have life now, so that they would have abundant life. And I told you I would develop that thought. What does that mean? That means as you understand that statement, you have no fear in this life. You have no fear in death. You have no fear of trauma. You have no fear of job loss, no fear of finances. Why can I say that? Because Jesus has solved the biggest issue in your life. Your separation with God has been dealt with. You're no longer separated, but you're joined to him. He's taken care of the big issues. Can he handle the small issues? Well, he says that he can. He says, your father knows when a bird falls from the sky. He knows the number of hairs on your head. He certainly can take care of the small things if he can save you for all of eternity. Verse 11, he goes on to explain a little bit further about what the good shepherd does. Stay with me on this. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Verse 12, 
He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. Verse 13, he flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. So in the first century and way before that, when evening came, there was danger that was stalking. There was a reason they had to have this sheep pen. There were lions and there were wolves and hyenas and jaguars and panthers and leopards and bears. And they were looking for food. It was common. They're not so common today because of urban sprawl. But it was common during that period of time. So the life of a shepherd was very common to face those animals. David specifically talks about how he had to fight with a lion and how he had to fight with a bear. Now, Jesus says something very specific in the Greek language in verse 11. He says, the shepherd, the Greek language reads this way, the shepherd that we're talking about, the shepherd, the good one, meaning there's bad ones. He's saying, I'm the shepherd, I'm the good one. I'm setting myself apart from every other false leader. I'm the good one. Uh, Being a faithful shepherd entailed the reality that they would have to be willing to protect at all cost. Whatever might come their way, a good shepherd would lay down their life. Where Jesus went far beyond being willing to lay down his life, he actually did lay down his life. So that puts a twist on what these listeners standing around Jesus that morning would have been hearing. A twist in this way. Under Old Testament law, they understood that the sheep died for the shepherds. Shepherds didn't die for the sheep. Sheep died for the shepherds. Even the shepherds had sin, and so the sheep were used in the sacrificial system, and they were sacrificed, and they died for the shepherds and and for all the people. But now Jesus is saying, this shepherd, this good shepherd, I am the good one. The good shepherd dies for the sheep. Verse 14, he keeps going. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Watch how many times this word know comes up. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. This word know is is just very beautiful especially in the language that it was written in. And just hear the description with me. It's indicating a a unique love relationship. We know in the Old Testament, especially in the book of Genesis, the word know was used to describe the intimacy between a husband and wife. We're told that Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and, and bore a son. The word no was used in the realm of sexual intimacy, but it was also used in the broader sense, the context of a unique love relationship. In other words, an intimacy. In this word no is that intimacy. It has this connotation of a relationship that is so deep it cannot be separated, a deep love clinging together. What happens on the day of judgment We're talking about judgment here at the very beginning. Now we're coming to the end. What happens on the day of judgment? We're told according to the Bible that on the day of judgment, Jesus sends unbelievers away from him by making a statement. He sends the unbelievers away who do not know him. 
Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. There's, there's no unique love relationship, no love relationship with them. So the simple truth that Jesus is stating here is this. He says, I know my own. I, I know them to the degree that I can even call them by name. And I'm here to ask you this morning, do you know Jesus today? Do you know him as your Savior? If that is true, he knows you. He knows your name. He knows you intimately. He knows you in such a deep, loving, abiding way that you can't be separated from him because he knows you to that degree. There's intimacy here, and it takes, he takes a personal interest in those that are his to the degree that he even laid down his life for you. So he's not going to lose you, church. He's not going to lose you even if a virus threatens everything that is precious to you. Even if you've suffered financial loss, if you've suffered job loss, perhaps you've had health issues that have come up in your life in the last two weeks. You belong to him. That's for eternity. Verse 16, he keeps going this way. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. This is a really unique statement that he's making here. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with this one shepherd. It's a very unifying statement. We talked in the beginning about how divisive Jesus is because he's the hinge pin, which closes or opens doors. And now it's very unifying because he's talking here about bringing every race on this planet, every race together within his church. In other words, believers, every race being unified together. Who are the other sheep he's talking about here? Well, the other sheep are Gentiles, meaning if you weren't born Jewish. In the Bible, there's Jews and there's Gentiles. Gentiles is not derogatory. It's just a description of people who are not born Jewish. So it's, the other sheep are Gentiles. Romans 1.16 speaks to that. So we've got the saved Jews and the saved Gentiles becoming one flock with one shepherd, meaning believers in India, believers in Germany, believers in China this morning, believers all over this planet, unified together. I've received notes this last week from people in Texas and people in California and people in Florida, people certainly right here from in Michigan. I told you in, in the recent weeks, thousands of households are watching the New Hope live stream. And we understand that if we're believers in Jesus, we're at home separately, but we're at home together because we're part of this body of Christ. We're all part of the family of God. Now, for Jesus in the first century to suggest this kind of unity in one flock, absolutely revolutionary. No one had ever thought of that or heard of that. But follow the thinking when Jesus says in John 3, 16, for God so loved, and you can finish the thought, for God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. He died for the whole world. Jesus belongs to every race of people. He belongs to everyone from every planet, or every part of this planet, if they would confess the name of Jesus. He belongs to every race. Verse 17, he finishes it this way, and so we'll finish it this way. For this reason the Father loves me, 
because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. That's not a cryptic statement he's making here, church. Here's what Jesus is doing. God the Son is validating his devotion to God the Father. That through his obedience, he did exactly what was prescribed that he would do. Philippians 2.8 says this, By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see that on your screen? Jesus is demonstrating his obedience, his devotion to God the Father. So in verse 17, he said, I lay down my life. Well, he's dying. He's talking about dying there, obviously. Dying for who? Well, he didn't die for the Father. He didn't need to die for the Father. So he died to the Father because of obedience, but he died for who? Well, he died for all whom the Father had given to the Son. So Jesus goes on to say in verse 18, no one has taken it from me. It's my life. No one is taking it from me. In other words, Jesus is not some pawn of history on a giant chessboard. If you thought that, that his life was taken, it is totally mistaken to think that way. He's in total control of the circumstances. It was completely voluntary. No one took his life. Let me back that up for you. John 19, 11. He's speaking to Pilate when he's on trial here. You, Pilate, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you from above, Pilate. Or what about this verse? He's speaking to Peter in the garden when he's being arrested, and he says to Peter this in Matthew 26, Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? He could have said, I'm out of here. I want the angels to come, Father, and rescue me. That means because he didn't do that, that everything that happened to him, all of that came at no surprise whatsoever. Just track this with me. The betrayal of Judas, the arrest in the garden, the trial before Caiaphas, the arraignment before Pilate, the insults from the soldiers, the, the beating, the whipping, the chains, even being nailed to a cross, all of that was voluntary for you, for me. He did it for every one of us. How easily he could have walked away, but he did not. He would not. And he goes on to say, twice he says, I take up my life again. What's he pointing towards? He's pointing towards Easter morning. He's pointing forward in time because he knows what's coming. He says this in verse 18, I have authority to take it up again. See, that's the ultimate demonstration of who he really is. And by that same power of his own resurrection, he's going to raise his flock one day. He's going to raise you one day to eternal life because that's the will of God the Father, that all who belong to him will be raised one day. Look with me on the screen at this, John 6, 39. This is the will of him who sent me, 
that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. This should give you great encouragement this morning, church. Watch this. I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life and I myself will raise him up on the last day. That means this virus that our planet is facing, not just our nation, but globally, this virus is nothing in light of the one who redeemed you. In light of the one who spoke this world into existence, this virus is nothing. If you've got financial loss, you've got health loss, I don't, I don't mean to make those insignificant, but you have nothing to fear if Jesus knows you by name. If Jesus has you in the palm of his hand, now understand, I'm not trying to be your spiritual cheerleader here. That's not my goal. I'm just relaying to you God's truth, the thing that you need to hear from God's word to be encouraged. Now, that's for the sake of the church. This last thought is an invitation for those who may not yet belong to Jesus. Perhaps you haven't yet decided whether or not you believe. Maybe this morning your heart's been stirred to the point where you say, I get it. This makes sense to me. I believe this. I understand that he came to rescue sinners. I want you to be reminded of this again from what we started with saying earlier today. You must come to Jesus for salvation because it will not occur in any other way. It will not occur in any other name. And I know it's politically incorrect to say it, but it's the truth of God's word. Look what God says in Acts 4.12. You'll see this on your screen. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Let's close this by thinking back to Shrek. We're going to worship in just a minute, but hear this thought. Shrek was found after six years wandering in the wilderness, and he picked up a lot of weight along the way, weight that he didn't have to bear. He's carrying this burden for six years. When he was found, a professional sheep shearer, he put the scissors to Shrek. And he, he shored that sheep, if that's the right way to say it. Try saying that fast three times. When he put the scissors to Shrek, he took off his fleece in 28 minutes. What he had carried for six years is gone in 28 minutes. 60 pounds of burden completely removed. All it took was being in the hands of a good shepherd. Jesus can remove your burden this morning. You know you've got sin. If you're not in Jesus, you've got to do something with it. You have to do something with the information. I'm, I'm here this morning just to talk you through that as we close this in prayer. And Michael's going to lead us in a worship song, but I, I want you to pray with me this way. Let's all pray together. Would you bow your heads right now? Father, I believe that there are some who have a desire to confess faith in Christ at this moment. They want to be saved and if that's you and if you're watching in the privacy of your home right now, I'm inviting you just to close your eyes and just say these words to God the Father. God, I know that I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to take away my sin. I believe 
in Jesus Christ. God, will you take away my sin? I want eternal life. On the basis of that, if that was you, if you said that to the Father right now, God says that you are then a believer. Father, I pray for everyone who's watching this morning, both believers, those who are not yet there, and and some who are maybe being a little obstinate about this, but some who have just professed Jesus Christ. God, I pray for every single one of us that this word would not escape us, but that you would drive it deep into our heart this morning, that we have a good shepherd, and he gave his life for us so that we don't have to worry about viruses. We don't have to worry about job loss or financial loss. Rather, we can rejoice and we can look forward to eternity, an eternity that escapes even our ability to imagine. God, we take these truths, remind us as we take on this week ahead of us, even though we don't know yet what it contains. Use it for the glory of your kingdom. Expand your kingdom. In Jesus' precious name. And I invite you to say along with me, amen, amen. If you just received Jesus Christ yourself before we take this worship song on, would you take a minute and send us an email and we'll send you some follow-up information. I'll, I'll send you a note myself. I'd be happy to connect with you. Send an email to New Hope Church. You can do it mark at New Hope Church if you want to. Let us know what decision you made for Jesus. Michael's going to lead us in worship now. In the meantime, have a great week, New Hope.